I can't think of any sort of um, average Joe, regular normie like me who uses the word deconstruction. I can think of like Christian celebrities who do, Mm. like who would say I'm deconstructing. Like, I don't know if I've ever had somebody say those words to me um, or if they have said it, it's because somebody else some like a celebrity coined the term. So I think, I think to me, there's often what is happening is, is coming from an awareness of that. Like, yeah, like you mentioned the disconnect that something is off either in the, the history of the church or in my experience of some pastoral failing or something like that. Like there's a, an awareness that wasn't previously there and now it's causing me to question the things that have gone before. But I think for me, that term deconstruction is so loaded because like, it doesn't feel like a real word. It feels like a buzzword. Mm. And so, yeah, I, I would say that with the people I know who are going through a process of trying to figure out their, their faith that they've inherited or been given it, they feel a little stuck because it does kind of feel like there's two camps. Um, and one camp is like, you need to figure your way out of this. And one camp is like, you need to ignore your questions so you can dive more deeply into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's sort of the people in my life kind of tend to just sort of, yeah, feel a lot of tension between a binary there. Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Well, my friends, once again, I am always, 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 always happy to be back in my own living room looking over at producer Zach. And looking over at my, I don't want to say erstwhile, I want to say perpetual okay. co-host, my <laughs> most frequent co-host imaginable, um, Mrs. Laura Hashimov. Laura, welcome back to the home, Casa Woods. Thank you so much. It's delightful to be here. There is an impressive collection of children's books all around me, and I feel very cozy. Largely color-coded. Yeah. Largely. We got this, the series is the best thing in the world when you can see a series. Uh-huh. It's just very satisfying. Anyways, but we're not here to talk about a series of children's books, although you know I always recommend The Winged Feather Saga. Um, but we are here to talk about something, well, is it childish? Is it grown up? We are here to talk about something called deconstruction. And the deconstruction movement or the deconstruction posture or the deconstruction process that has uh, overtaken huge swaths of the evangelical church in particular. You and I Mm. uh, both grow up evangelical, so we'll be speaking largely from that context. Um, But this this word, deconstruction, uh, is one that many people have heard about. Uh, It's one of the only times someone has approached me and requested a podcast episode on a topic. Really? So that's a thing that happened. Um, okay. I had a, had a lady friend of the pod uh, say, ooh, I would love it if you guys would, would talk about that. Hmm. And she said because many of her friends use the term or describe that in their lives in some way, and she's not ever sure how to respond to it or what to do with that or what that hmm. what that looks like. And so she thought it would be helpful uh, if, if a few of us got together and kind of talked about it, gave it a little oxygen, and kind of think it through a little bit. And that's, I mean, that's what a podcast is, a conversation. It's relatively informal what we do, but we want to tackle this topic of deconstruction. Uh, and it's always good to tackle a topic as teachers by defining our terms. Yes. Now, Laura, as Merriam-Webster Dictionary <laughs> says, notoriously difficult to define deconstruction. It originally is a movement in architectural theory, uh, but it, it comes to us more from the side of literary criticism and the famous French philosopher Jacques Derrida, which, uh, for myself, Zach, and others, uh, basically built the the relatively highly uh, regarded and well-known uh, English department at UCI. Uh, and Me really the, the complet department um, and pretty much UCI as a humanities um, institution in the 1960s. They got Derrida to basically be um, back and forth, kind of coming over and lecturing and stuff mm-hmm. like that. 
We've got a so, room full of anteaters here today. I'm, t- I'm just saying. So there, there's Derrida, you know, vibes all over the water. But but Jacques Derrida and deconstruction as a philosophical movement is notoriously difficult to understand, to describe. Um, and so we want to kind of not press it too far when we're talking about trying to link a philosophical or a literary criticism um, theory with evangelicals, you know, just walking um, through things to do with the church. So it starts, the term comes from that world of high theory. Um, It is, again, sort of, depending on who you ask, everyone has a slightly different definition of it. Mm -hmm. But when it gets to sort of, when it trickles down to sort of a little bit more of the laity um, and how people came to understand it and use it, which may or may not be exactly what Derrida intended, um, it had a lot to do with questioning and resisting sort of the traditional uh, assumptions about where meaning comes from and where authority can can uh, mm-hmm. sort of claim its place. And so uh, I'll give a quote here from Kevin Van Hooser, who is a, a Christian theologian um, who, who read a lot of Derrida and was trying to think through some of the connections with what we're, we're after here. He said, the motive behind Derrida's strategy of undoing or deconstructing stems from his alarm over illegitimate appeals to authority and exercises of power. The belief that one has reached the single correct meaning or God or truth provides a wonderful excuse for damning those with whom one disagrees as either fools or heretics. So everybody kind of knows at least that Derrida and this movement starts from this uncomfortability with those who claim to speak in the name of capital T truth mm-hmm. and anyone who disagrees is is capital F false <laughs> um, or speak in the name of God as some absolute authority as human beings claiming absolute authority um, and so he says neither priests who supposedly speak for God nor philosophers who supposedly speak for reason capital R reason should be trusted this logocentric claim to speak from a privileged perspective, whether reason or the word of God, is a bluff that must be called, or better, deconstructed. Hmm. So at least at the heart of, of, of this idea is this questioning, and I would say in many ways a fairly legitimate questioning of human beings who claim to know all, see all, and speak with some absolute authority or absolute claim to the truth um so it starts in that kind of place it's a sort of an ethical posture of resisting um those who would condemn anyone who disagrees with them because we are so tightly bound up in our cultural context our time our era that we can't actually know i think that's that's a big component of it to me is like we we are so corrupted or shaped by what we live in, our our culture, our context, that it it is, you know, at at best ignorant and at worst manipulative to mm-hmm. try and claim what is true for everybody over all time for everything. Right. And it's funny even talking about this now because, you know, sixty years later, this is how everyone thinks. Yeah. So it sounds super obvious or redundant. Mm-hmm. Um, this is how the average teenager would describe existence mm-hmm. and their their understanding of meaning. Yeah. Um, so it's not for nothing that this argument won. Uh, and, and, and to be fair, I mean, my training is, is in sort of uh, early modern um, literary movements and skepticism. And my guy is like Michel de Montaigne and this is this is as old as anything, right? Mm-hmm. In some sense, like this questioning of absolute dogmatic authorities mm-hmm. that claim to speak for God and conduct wars in the name of God mm-hmm. against other Christians who also are claiming to speak for God. Like you know, this idea that we should do, we should be suspicious, even especially as Christians. You know, Montaigne is a Christian in a fallen world where everyone is corrupted or tainted or distorted in some way, including our reasoning apparatus by sin. We should be very suspicious of people who claim to see perfectly clearly or know perfectly uh, thoroughly. Um, and so so it starts, you know, or those movements, we could agree with that as Christians who believe in original sin and right. the realities of the fall. And Paul says, now I know in part, right? I mean, like the apostle Paul does not claim to see everything. I can't even judge myself. I, mm-hmm. You know, there's all these moments in Paul of that basic skeptical understanding of human nature and human reason. 
Um, but when it when it gets a bit further and it becomes the cultural mode, as you're saying, it becomes we can't know. Everything is is a construction of your mind trying to understand the world. There is not necessarily a, a world out there that is attainable or discernible or knowable. Uh, and so we just sort of have to come up with and project and construct our own meanings in order to have life have some sense to it uh, mm-hmm. and create a narrative out of things. Um, so people could disagree with that or not, but the heart of this comes back to this idea that we ought to be suspicious of those who claim dogmatic uh, understanding of the truth or to speak from those places of absolute authority. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when it gets down again, trickles further down, not just to sort of lay level theorizing or how we think about, you know, I don't know, meaning, um, but when it gets down to like what it is now, what yeah. we're talking about, when, when the average sort of garden variety evangelical person in their 20s 30s or 40s because that's largely what this is Mm -hmm. um says i'm deconstructing uh makes that statement which i've heard many times um says that phrase now in the context of evangelical usage it, it it means deconstruction as a critical dismantling of a person's understanding of what it means to be a christian And in some cases, a refusal to recognize as authorities, those perceived as occupying those privileged institutional positions, those who, quote, supposedly speak for God. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when the average person in the church or leaving the church uh, says, I am deconstructing my faith, it's I am questioning what I was raised with, I am questioning what I assumed, I am questioning what the church taught me about yeah. what it means to even be a Christian. Um, and and that may result in an, any number of things. They may leave the church. We've seen plenty of people uh, leave the church because of this process of deconstructing. I turned over every stone of what I was raised with. Turns out I can't trust anything. Right. It's all nonsense. Um, and then we've seen other people use it as a way of trying to grapple with this total disjunction between the things the people in their lives who are Christians said and then the realities maybe of Jesus and mm-hmm. and the difference between the church and the words of Christ, um, between an evangelical world and the teaching of the New Testament. So sometimes it can be this really sincere grappling with the absolute sort of sometimes shocking difference between church culture, uh, evangelical culture, and what the Bible seems to actually be about. Mm -hmm. Um, So it can go in so many different directions, but when we have experienced it, you and I, we have probably, I mean, I I can think in in seminary of many people starting to use this term, and, and it really depended on the person whether or not I trusted the use of the term, you know, there was, yeah. is that your experience as well? That like, it, you couldn't yeah. map it. It was like case by case, but it was hard to like know what it meant. I can't think of any sort of um, average Joe, regular normie like me who uses the word deconstruction. I can think of like Christian celebrities who do, mm. like who would say I'm deconstructing. Like, right. I don't know if I've ever had somebody say those words to me. Um, or if they have said it, it's because somebody else, some like a celebrity coined the term. So I think, I think to me, there's often what is happening is, is coming from an awareness of that. Like, yeah, like you mentioned the disconnect that something is off either in the, the history of the church or in my experience of some pastoral failing or something like that. Like there's a, an awareness that wasn't previously there and now it's causing me to question the things that have gone before. But I think for me, that term deconstruction is so loaded because like, it doesn't feel like a real word. It feels like a buzzword. Mm. And so, yeah, I, I would say that with the people I know who are going through a process of trying to figure out their, their faith that they've inherited or been given it, they feel a little stuck because it does kind of feel like there's two camps. Um, and one camp is like, you need to figure your way out of this. And one camp is like, you need to ignore your questions so you can dive more deeply into it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's sort of the people in my life kind of 
tend to just sort of, yeah, feel a lot of tension between a binary there. Yeah. I mean, I think when I encountered it first and it was like people at seminary, it was like, it was a little alarming in some ways. And then it was like really cool. Mm. And I could tell it was being used in like, not to be like unfair, but I could just tell it was being used to describe like, I, I might know better than, yeah, than like, everything I was uh-huh. raised with. And so I'm going to use this, this sophisticated sounding term to describe the fact that it, it, it was very loaded with sort of this, like, ironically, this kind of know-it-all-ism. <laughs> like, like, I can see through everything. Yeah. And so, you know, you plebes down there who still, like, trust the ordinary things in church, um, you know, like, kind of need to wake up and realize that we're at the front foot of something we're on the the edge of something where where we can kind of see through it and it's hard to trust sort of good old pastor so-and-so because you know they're not as educated as we are and and yeah like there was a lot of vibes with people at seminary um not really having a lot of respect for any kind of spiritual authority Hmm. um and so this became in some ways it felt very convenient for that group that I saw sort of interact with this first um, to kind of, you know, say, oh, this is a thing. It's not just me. Like, this is a sophisticated thing that, you you know, that everyone should do or that, you know, those who have seen mm-hmm. um, should enter into. Um, but that, that was like 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And, you know, so I, I think for me, the same thing, it, it always felt sort of silly, a little silly. Like, I... I am no fan of evangelicalism writ large. I, I think the movement is is uh, shipwrecked. And um, so I'm I'm here for anybody who's like, oh, it turns out, you know, Jesus might not be a Republican and turns out the moral majority and uh, the politics mm-hmm. of tribalism in the church. turns out, like, I yes, of course, amen. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, it always, it struck me early on as like how naive could we be as people to assume that like church culture was like reality when, when you get to a certain age and you do see like, Oh, that's just like a subculture that I grew up in. Yeah. Um, it's not reality. It's just a subculture that I grew up mm-hmm. in and everyone has their own little corner of the world they grew up in. So to me, I guess like seeing through quote unquote evangelicalism was just like part of life, you know, of part of just yeah. like growing up as a Christian. And yeah. like walking with the Lord, yeah, and and that's going to happen in a in a thousand different ways. I think maybe some, part of what the conversation about this that worries me is is it it I think as I as I mentioned, it kind of forces people into this camp of like, oh, are you deconstructing? And then that sort of causes this. I don't know, am I? You know, mm. but in reality, life has the the life of faith has a lot of ebbs and flows and movements. Um, things you might have dearly held to in your younger years in your you know in 20s and 30s you might say you know i don't maybe god does still do miracles today you know i didn't i was raised in a church that said miracles don't happen anymore but maybe he does or vice versa Mm -hmm. you know like there's a normal ebb and flow that i think happens in a christian life that we need to be okay with um without maybe kind of the categories kind of can make it will box people in and make them think like, is this it? Is it happening? And um, like, no, maybe you're just becoming Lutheran or maybe you're just becoming Catholic or maybe you're just becoming, you know, Pentecostal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like there's, there's, I think there's freedom to sort of see what that, that means. Um, But to me, if we're talking about, you know, the idea of deconstruction at large is, that there, there are some deeper, maybe foundational cracks showing that go beyond just some of those secondary minor issues. And that's what I think you really, you have to discern in conversation with someone or in your own heart. Like, it, it is this tension coming from a secondary issue about infant baptism? Or is this coming from a primary issue about like the divinity of Christ? Yeah. Or is this coming from a primary issue about like, is Christianity toxic 
to the planet. Mm. You know, like those, those are bigger than sort of um, speaking in tongues, yay or nay. And so I think we have to make sure we're not majoring on the minors and thinking these secondary issues are worth dismantling the whole thing. Because no, I think through study and learning of different culture and denominations, you can, like, those are tensions we can hold, right? Um, but then there's some tensions that are a little bit make or break. <laughs> um, and at a certain point, it's like, okay, well, if, if you can't hold to X, Y, and Z, then maybe you're not a Christian anymore. Um, and so I think but that's can only come through conversation and working through with people um, in a really deep way. Otherwise, I think we can hear somebody if we don't actually listen and somebody says, I'm deconstructing or I have a lot of questions or I'm uncertain about evangelicalism, we can have a knee-jerk reaction to that and maybe put on them something that is not actually what they're saying. Yeah, that's well said. And in the practical side there of like working that through like in an in-person small level of like conversations right. with people you know and trust. Um, and I think that's the contrast to me is what we would say is, patently not not even secondary but like tertiary things about like mega church structure and right. music subculture mm-hmm. and celebrity pastors i think what's remarkable or what's so devastating to me is those sort of silly obviously sort of structural sort of movement cultural like just moment things of evangelicalism the last 40 50 years they really were so effective Hmm. in so many ways at, I would say, like infantilizing our generation um, hmm. to like a form of groupthink and a form of group life and a form of like almost rote kind of like voyeuristic or participatory, you know, volunteerism or something, yeah. like a way of doing church that when you when you see the cracks or when you see the silliness or when you see whatever and, and it looks so small from the outside, when you're... When you're in that world, if, if that is the only world you knew, and that's the world of your parents, that's the world of everyone you knew who was a Christian, I think that's what's been so remarkable to me that I want to I wanna just sort of like give fair due to the fact that that really was so effective at mm. completely swallowing people into, this is Christianity. Um, this subculture is everything. This is reality. And the fact that it is so in so many ways disconnected from reality, the fact that um, the celebrity pastor thing, the fact that the just the consumerist model of, of these things, the business model of church, that's really what people believed and experienced uh, maybe uncritically for decades of their lives as what it meant to walk with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so I want to give a fair shake to the fact that when you realize that that is sometimes, in many ways, radically disconnected from reality, or when rise and fall of Mars Hill, you have some some devastating, you know, toppling or fall of celebrity pastors or mm-hmm. celebrity Christians, um, which is an insane category. Um, <laughs> but you know, when when you're in that world, and those are the people who have taught you the word of God, mm-hmm. those are the people who have told taught you how to pray. Those are the people that have encouraged you with inspirational words here and there for years as you went through real life things. And all of a sudden, those people, some of whom have left the faith, some right. of whom right have left their families, some of whom have just torpedoed their churches. Um, <sighs> Fair play. Like that yeah. is insane, right? That is an insane experience if you were only ever inside that world and that was what Christianity was, full stop. And now you look around and you don't even know where that is. Like, mm-hmm. was that all fake? Um, mm-hmm. If so many of these things were not connected to reality, um, do I even have an understanding of what the Lord sounds like if I believed it's he sounded like that pastor who is not even like, you know, faithful anymore or whatever, right? Like Yeah. I want to give some room for that traumatic experience. Yeah, that um, that I think and I think that can come in various forms. Like I think that yeah, there's that my husband and I have labeled this the disillusionment. Yeah. Which is um someone you know 
to some degree and, and loved and trusted and respected and looked to as an authority, um, failed in some way, shape or form. Maybe it was in a moral failing. Maybe it is in a, um, I don't know, character failing. Maybe it is, um, you know, they suddenly hitched their wagon to a political cause and you thought, what on earth, what's happening? Like, we didn't sign up for this, right? So there's, there's that, um, kind of shattering of, someone who is sort of high up on the shelf as, as a major cause for pain and concern, you know, and I think we, we latch on so easily to those kinds of figures because we want their confidence and we want their security mm-hmm. in, and cause they always seem so confident and sure. And they've built their whole life around this thing. And then when they admit, actually, I don't know if I believe that, or actually, I don't know if I want to stay with my wife anymore, or actually, you know, whatever it is, suddenly it can it can be a shattering experience because we have put so many i don't know so much hope in that but i i think that's a that is a true and sincere pain and i was i mean i was at dinner with friends last night who've been christians their whole life um and so i asked them and we have all experienced pretty significant um experiences of like you know, a fallen pastor or pastoral failings. And we were talking through like, why did, why do we think we stuck it out when we saw people who were like, that's it. Like that was the last straw for me. And why was it the last straw? Um, And I think there's a certain degree of that that can only come from the grace of God. And I think, you know, there, but for the grace of God go all of us. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think there is sort of a, we can tie ourselves up vicariously in the faith of somebody else or in the, the leadership of somebody else. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you have thoughts for that in, I'm sure you've experienced the same at this point in our lives. We've all experienced yeah. some pastor going off the deep end in some way, shape or form. Well, and it, you know, I think what's tough. So I've been the pastor at a small church for almost 20 years and I feel like, and we were never trying to not be a small church and people have always given us a hard time for uh, quenching the spirit or not wanting to be more like, why wouldn't you want to be more? And I saw early on people's willingness, first of all, to confuse me being their pastor with me being their best friend and blurring the heck out of that line. So that if I ever needed to speak with any kind of spiritual authority or call someone on something, it was, how could you? You're my friend. How could you betray me like this? Like mm. the confusion mm. of categories with people who knew me well. And I was like, man, you put that to scale. And the only way you avoid some of those things is just if people just don't know you. Yeah. So like the solution to that was like, you got to work through that with people because that mistake is made with proximity, like in person. And it's also made with anonymity from a distance with an Instagram inspirational quote every day from this speaker or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I saw at every, on either side of that, there wasn't like some safe place. Everyone, we all have a tendency to want to turn to human beings instead of to Jesus. Yeah. And if that person seems to speak for Jesus or seems to know Jesus really well, it is much easier to turn to that person than to Jesus. And and I started to realize that one of the reasons that our small church was always small is because it was led by a pastor, not me. I was the uh, sort of assistant associate pastor um, who refused to be Jesus to people. And so was regularly disappointing all of those like impulses or those those once people. What do you had. mean by that? Um, by refu- refusing to be Jesus to someone sounds like a negative to me. Yeah, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Um, Pastor John, who is frequent on the podcast and um, helped me start it. Um, Pastor John is very aware when someone is wanting more from him than the Lord has asked him to be in their lives. Okay. What's um, an example of that? So an example would be um, they want to regularly talk to him about something and keep him as sort of like a pocket pastor okay. on call all the time um, at every moment, um, at any moment, without any real 
end in sight in a one-on-one mm. private counselor um, capacity. And I, in my younger years, would be like, well, they, yeah, you don't have to be there. for You just have to be there, you know. Mm-hmm. Take a call any time of night, you know, always mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. leaping, whatever. Um, and, and then I started to see, oh, he knows what I'm finding out, which is they start to think they need me. Hmm. Um, because they, I'm almost like teaching them not to turn to the Lord mm-hmm. because they can always turn to me and I'm, you're usually going to be like as sympathetic as possible. You know, I know them. I'm, I am going to be very friendly. I'm going to be whatever. But it would like become a crutch in people's lives for them to need me. And me as the pastors, and pastors do this all the time, the, the want to be needed, right? Like you, you almost define ministry if you're not careful around the fact that like I am a needed person. Hmm. Um, you know, Eugene Peterson has said many great things, but he did an entire um, series um, of teachings on the unnecessary pastor. Yeah. And that was one of the most helpful and provocative um, hmm. things that I've heard as a pastor was, you know, that you, you should be, you should, your goal should be to be unnecessary. And many of us to build up the ego, and I never did the platform thing and tried the celebrity root thing, um, but that's what that is. It's the same thing. It's just mm-hmm. writ large that I people are depending on me. They yeah. they need me, right? right? They come to Sunday morning and they they've been wrecked by the week, and I I'm gonna give them this shot of adrenaline and faith and confidence in Jesus and all these kinds of things. And I saw Pastor John just subtly always. Um, sort of switching, like Indiana Jones when he switches that bag with that golden statue thing. Yeah. Um, the word in its precision and its careful articulation um, instead of him. Hmm. So he would focus more on really carefully teaching a, a passage of scripture that would really cause you to have to really chew and wrestle on the words of the Lord um, so that it wasn't just... I encourage you, I inspired you today. And there were subtle things. Um, But over the years, I started to see that they were very deliberate on on his part. And he was was trying to rescue his people so that they had to turn to the Lord. Mm -hmm. And they had to learn how to hear the voice of the Lord. And they had to learn how to make the distinctions between the voice of a counselor and the voice of Jesus. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. Because those are things that maturity requires but many people never would get to that place because they'd always have either an on-call pastor or an on-call podcast or an on-call inspirational post right that always met the need that they had felt um without it having to be jesus like and then when you would see those pastors who were on call not even walk with the Lord sometimes at a certain <laughs> point. You're like, oh my gosh, you know, mm-hmm. now I just, I genuinely don't know how to find the Lord because I haven't been practicing how to find the Lord myself. I've been practicing how to listen to a person um, or follow right. a personality. And I think those, I, over the last 20 years, that to me is one of the greatest challenges. And I think um, if you didn't have to like work through that on some like small level of like, okay, my pastor is just a person and yeah. they are looking for the Lord and, and, and I can't, they're not enough for me. Like they, they have a responsibility to bring me, to look out for wolves, to try to bring the word to me, but they're not the Lord and I need to find the Lord and I need to yeah. know how to walk with the Lord. So those kinds of things that are really hard and really complex and really subtle sometimes, um, the Lord has been walking me, us through that for 20 years. And most of the people around me, because of the places of the structures of the churches they were in, didn't even know a pastor well enough to get to that point of having, of being, you know, of making those kinds of, oh, wait, this is not the same thing. Or like, it mm-hmm. was even more Teflon. It was even more sanitized because it was this proximate pastor, of, you know, who they didn't even know personally. And I felt it when people knew me personally, that it was still this really difficult thing. Um, Yeah. Henry Nouwen, I'm reading with a group I'm reading, um, it's called The Living Reminder, I think. Henry Nouwen's, and he talks a lot about that ministry of presence and then the ministry of absence. Yeah. Um, And the need, 
you know, even even Jesus says, "Okay, I'm leaving you." Yeah, yeah. Um, because the Holy Spirit being with you is actually better, <laughs> and so he. I, I think that's a really interesting point you bring up is this idea of there should be a a pain or ache at our inaccessibility um, because that will drive them to to Christ and his spirit who is always present. Like there's, we, um, but I think in terms of this conversation of like disillusionment and disappointment, I think it can happen on that smaller scale for people of, you know, oh, they're, they're human. But I, I do think there is that, the catastrophic scale yeah. that I'm, I'm sympathetic to people who, you know, have a hard time recovering from, from that level of hypocrisy. And, and I can, and I have experienced it in my own life of just like, Oh, you didn't mean anything. You said, I was listening to an interview with Beth Moore and she said, you know, the most painful part of the past few years of her life was realizing certain people in her life didn't believe a thing they had been teaching. And she was like, you, you always said it was this, but you didn't actually mean it. (laughs) And it was, um, and that provides a real moment of either pushing out of it or I don't know if I want to say leaning into it, but I think those are real moments where we have to, I don't know if I want to say decide, but it's, it's a real moment where we are, we are faced with some sort of choice of how are we going to process through this pain? Um, and sometimes opting out is simpler um, than having to process through the pain um, and try to disentangle a human being from the gospel itself, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, so yeah, that can happen. It's it's tough in the celebrity um, sense, but I think it's even tougher for the Christians who've experienced it on that interpersonal level um, or somebody they've known or walked with who bounced. And it doesn't even have to be a pastor necessarily, even thinking of people in my life who have just had very good Christian friends who suddenly showed themselves to be somebody they weren't like, oh, that was not true. Right. What you and, and that can lead to a spiraling process. Um, so I, I think that if you are someone who's in that state of serious disappointment by a Christian in your life. Um, what, what would be the advice that you would give to somebody who's, who's in that place of like, I am seriously disappointed by this real person. Yeah. Uh, my thoughts are, you know, welcome to the fall. Like, <laughs> I mean, you know, like I, that, yeah. it, that you shouldn't see that as like the end of something that, that is genuinely like, it's like phase one of so yeah. many things. It's like Peter being like, I'll go with you to the death. I don't even know the man. Like, I mean, it's, it's literally like round one of, of real discipleship is like being overwhelmed by mm-hmm. personal and proximate failure to be what we thought we were. Like I, if you haven't experienced that on some level, I don't know what you've been doing. You know, like <laughs> if you've been trying, if you've been digging in, I yeah. think that, and the reason I say that is because you're not alone. Like there, hmm. and, and that's not all churches. Like the vast majority of the churches that you and I uh, are around are places where people just keep going and realize, okay, the church is still the gift of God, the bride of Christ. He he will provide uh, pastors, shepherds that can be trusted. Um, like, don't stop at phase one, phase two disappointment, even or especially if it's super deep. That's that's when you kind of reckon with the cost of discipleship. I think where hmm. you you say, man, it was never supposed to be easy, and part of the most difficult part of this um, cost is everything you assumed can be gone. And yet, where else would we go, Lord? Like, you're the ones who have the word, you're the one who has the words of eternal life. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I, I feel like it's almost like the entrance into finding 
the Lord in the church with others um, who are like reckoning with the level of of what it takes to walk with the Lord. Hmm. Um, I feel like it's like the COVID moment where it's like plenty of people, huge numbers of people got washed out and their church commitment was light enough that not having it for a season meant they didn't need it again. Um, Okay, so that that was what it always was. It just revealed that for those who realized, man, without others in Christ, I, I, I don't know how to like move forward. Um, you double down, you, you, you lean in into that responsibility of man. He said, it's going to cost me everything. Like I don't get to choose the costs. I just know it costs everything. And, and if that's true for me, it's going to be true for right more than Elijah. It's going to be true for thousands and, and, and maybe millions of believers. And then there is something incredible about the kind of communion with people who are in, through, recognize, and are moving yes. forward from and through those places. Yeah. Because now you're now you're in reality in a way that is like wild, <laughs> yeah. you know? It's exhilarating to be like, oh, we don't need to keep having those super beginner conversations um, we, we get to we get to really move forward together because we both recognize can't you know let's don't don't slide back into that easy kind of easy proximate you know that person's faith is vicariously my faith right like those things are now easier to spot mm-hmm. it can be just a really refining process if you don't give up I mm-hmm. mean you know and and you and I have seen people who got a little bit of the disappointment and completely just used it to justify the fact that they wanted to sleep with their girlfriend or they would rather be doing anything else on Sunday. Um, and it just totally used it to, to, right. to go wherever they wanted to go with it. If you're that person, you know, you know that like that, that is not a sincere like position. of Yeah. Responsibility. I, I equate it to the, the COVID I had a few months off and no, uh, you know, like the sort of the true colors are revealed. Like I didn't actually. <laughs> turns it was, out. It was, it turns out I didn't like it as much as I thought I did. <laughs> but I, yeah, I do think that there is a, um, there's a sweet community that forms in that remnant that um, comes through kind of the, the shattered remains of something that wasn't, you know, I think that, that there can be real sympathy there and there's processing through the, experience of that and there's brokenness and but i think if you stick in a community and work through that together you can help each other through that and you can spot it in each other like yeah in my communities we can say you know i'm really anxious or paranoid about something but i'm maybe that's just flashbacks to five years ago and we're like yeah i think it might just be a five year ago (laughs) flashback but if you opt out then you don't then you lose the ability to have those conversations or have people speak into it and think you know like am I nervous about this just because of that pastor from eight years ago? Or mm-hmm. am I, um, is this like a genuine concern and check in my spirit? And I think you have to have people who have gone through it with you a little bit. Otherwise you are just flying solo. Or if you're, there are true and necessary occasions to rebuild, to extricate yourself from something and mm-hmm. rebuild. But I think uh, keeping a remnant of people who have seen and walked through something can produce true fruit um, when you are moving towards health together through that grief. The idea of the podcast to start with was like, let's just start in exile. Like, let's just start with (laughs) the remnant because then all those illusions of grandeur or of power or of, oh, we're going to be something or like... I was met Hayden for lunch the other day and he, you know, I just remind, you know, like in his tradition in my little tradition, like we're the losers. We've always been the losers. We, right. we embrace the fact that this is not going to be the thing. People aren't going to be like, I want to be a part of a tiny house church. And like maybe 20 people will, but, um, but like, and most people aren't going to be like, I want to be involved in a insane high liturgy Anglo Catholic church, you know, in the middle of whatever, <laughs> like, these are not the things, right, mm-hmm. that you've been looking for. Um, but this is reality. This is a, the the remnant mindset. Is like, hey, we're in exile. Like we're 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 not we're servants of Christ. We're not to assume very much. But it turns out in exile, there are other people there. And it turns out the Lord says, I want you to 
bless the city. I want you to build homes. I want you to have yeah. a life. That there are really good, simple things of life in the Lord with others that you can kind of get back to or get to when all of these sometimes massive disappointments, but when the some of the structural stuff, when some of the glitz and the glamour, when a lot of the subculture things or a lot of the assumptions um, are are cracked or broken away, um, there's a reality underneath that, which is the way has always been narrow and not broad. We were, we were told that from the beginning that few will find it. Yeah. And we just happened to grow up in a time in which the way was broad and many seemed to be finding it or, or you know, that, that it was like a cultural event of an entire country that was normative and, and, and relatively popular. Millions of people were involved unashamedly in a form of, of Christianity or a form of whatever. Um, no, so, you know, like there's nothing in scripture that, that should look um, like it's not for the people who are disappointed. There's nothing mm-hmm. in scripture should look that is, you know, for it's not the people who are like, wait a minute, this is hard. Or I really thought I had a lot of people in my life who were saying, Lord, Lord. Yeah. And, and it, I think the, the words of Jesus come to life in a way that is scary, but there's a way that we didn't need to hear them in a certain way when things were just sort of barreling forward as a mass movement of mm-hmm. everybody and, you know, in this, in this subculture is just going to go from strength to strength and, you know, we're going to have these perfect, you know, whatever's. Yeah. Yeah. I think that to me, when I think about deconstruction, the a biggest through line I see is that word disappointment. I think people are, are disappointed in their leaders or in their subculture. Sometimes I think the process of deconstructing and removing yourself from the Christian faith can comes from like even on a smaller scale disappointment in your own life of like the life God has given me yeah is not remarkable or is lonelier than I thought or less successful than I thought and so it's hard to talk about this because I think there's such scales like I think some people have a really hard time with evangelical Christianity or just Christianity at large because it look they look back at something historical like the crusades or like the treatment of women and or slavery and they think well how can i hitch my wagon to this and then other people just look at their their life and think i'm 40 and i'm not married and this is a real bummer and i don't know if god is who he says he is so it's such a wide topic of conversations it's hard for me to pick a lane <laughs> um but i think disappointment is the thing that's all through it you know um and so I don't know if for the sake of this conversation, we need to go that big picture, you know, the the systemic abuse of people throughout the centuries by the church, or do we go in that sort of small picture of, you know, my life is unremarkable and it's isn't as special or easy or purposeful as I'd hoped, or, you know, life is more painful, lonely and difficult than I had hoped. We're going to do the second one. I'm going to just make a comment about the first one. Okay. Uh, when it comes to like historic systemic, you know, systemic abuse, that kind of stuff, my encouragement would just be don't be an orange belt. Like don't, don't be an orange belt where, you, you know, you, you took a class, you read a book. Oh my gosh, it's a nightmare um, of, you know, pseudo Christians, you know, uh, doing horrible things in the name of Jesus. Mm. Yes but don't be an orange belt. Like don't stop there and be like, I took a class, you know, don't be the kid who comes back <laughs> from college and yells at everyone at Thanksgiving because you took a class, right? Mm-hmm. Like take another class, keep reading, right? Like, like don't, don't stop there and say, this is what I felt at seminary. We mm-hmm. rubbed up against a couple like classes or a book yeah. and then suddenly everyone knew everything. And they knew better than anything, including the history of the orthodoxy of the church. And it's like, keep going right like just right. don't don't do that like don't mm-hmm. be the amateur who is super destructive of their own spiritual life because they took a class mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. you have to go further than that it's much more serious it is your soul it really matters to take it seriously and to take responsibility for following it through deconstruction is not a destination it is a process but it has to go somewhere yeah and it, yeah, for some, they might be like, look, I've done all this, you know, done all this searching, and here are the conclusions I've come to, and they're not the Christian conclusion. Okay, well, like, let's reckon with that, if that's true. The vast majority of people that I've 
talked to or that I've heard talk about this are still in the very much amateurish awareness of the history of the church, of the realities of theology, of these kinds of things. And I would just say, you got to keep going. Because hmm. because the, the faithful witness of the church, of the suffering church, of, of those who the, follow Jesus to the point of complete you know, loss of everything, mm-hmm. that there is an unbroken seam of a remnant church from the first century to today that takes more than one class to find um, it takes more resolve to to be able to stay in there and look for it. Mm-hmm. Um, takes more time and patience, more prayer. It takes the Holy Spirit. It takes, but just don't don't bail when you're in orange belt and say I, <laughs> I know some moves now. Yeah, and so I'm out. Um, yeah, especially when it's been a you know something that's been building or you've been a part of for twenty thirty years. Don't let a book or a class or, you know, a, a single moral failing or like don't let that dismantle even a year or two or three of really struggling and working through something. Don't let that um, take away what maybe has been 20, 30, 40 years of um, foundation building. Yeah. Like be okay with moving really slowly. Yeah. And digging deeply into things and Yeah. And don't despise your youth. Right. Don't despise your parents. Yeah. Don't despise like the Lord was loving you in the midst of all sorts of people getting all sorts of things wrong. But it's so easy, especially with the and this is why I'm interested in the disappointment thing. When you're in your twenties, thirties, and forties and yet you're having an experience that is much more like a teenager's experience, which is, mm. wait a minute, the things I grew up with, you know, I might need mm-hmm. to push back against. Like, I think we're 15 years, 20 years later, um, because of the success of the subculture and insulating people. Interesting. I think we're experiencing an adolescent moment that is absolutely necessary in the development of a human being, and yet we're experiencing it in our 30s in our forties mm. and we're like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe this. I'm going to run away from home and throw everything out. And you know, they never understood me. They never cared. And it's like huge brushstrokes, super broad, very reductionistic, very simplistic, but it's because it's like the first strong, like recognition of like, I am not my parents. I am not, maybe there's right. something else. It's like, that's what we want our teenagers at the high school to be asking right now. But we're experiencing it with peers in our 30s and 40s, you know, who are reckoning with it now and maybe never really did before. And yet, because of that uh, almost sort of generation miss or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, it's also, as you said, coupled with the fact that, you know what, part of that cultural Christian experience was this promise of a great life was this promise yeah. of a perfect marriage, of this happy home, uh, success, the Lord having this purpose for me that was going to be more amazing than anything I could think or imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and i pretty sure I knew what that was, and that is not what my life looks like now. And so I'm going to add that to this this sort of teenage rebellion thing, but it's like Brooks's second mountain. It's like you're over all the ambitions of that first right. phase of life, and you are disappointed, and guess what? Most of the stuff was labeled Christian, and so now you're just like, I'm going to move out and get an apartment, you know? And it's like, <laughs> just slow down for a second, you know? Like, I don't right. think anyone can skip that phase. I think mm-hmm. everyone is just... Yeah, you have to go through it. You have to. You just And if you're in your 30s and 40s going through it for the first time, Godspeed, you know, then then you need to go through it. But be really careful that you don't do the teenage thing when you have children of your own and and are not reckoning with the fact that, you know, you are not meant to be a teenager in this way. You can go through this in a way that is not merely adolescent in its sort of selfishness. I've seen people just throw off their families. Yeah. Like like they're throwing Me off, too. you know, like they're moving out of their parents' home. Like it's mm-hmm. just this thing you do. And it's like, that is not a thing you do. That 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 is, there's no excuse for that kind of um, narcissism. Right. Um, and, and you can't blame any kind of amateurish understanding of the church writ large 
for that impulse uh, that you have allowed to become a way of life. It is so yoked to that disappointment. You need to reckon with the fact that, no, you are disappointed because life didn't go the way you wanted. And you might actually just need Jesus and not him to baptize the life the way you had expected it to be. But these are just such hard things. And I, I, I'm really pretty convinced we're just like out of time on this and we're having this adolescent moment and yet we have bills to pay and, and rent and yeah. mortgages. And it's yeah. like, and so it, it's not lining up where it looks like a normal part of our development. It looks like a catastrophe that ends everything about life I understood. And I want a full reset. I want to start over. I think, I think it's, yeah. And it just speaks to, this is something the Lord has taught me in my own life through various helpful sources. But like, whenever you're feeling a real sense of urgency, you really got to question it. <laughs> like any sense of, I must now decide, now or never, here we go, it's this is je- it. It's your this- jet lag wisdom. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anytime I feel that about anything, it has, uh, I cannot think of a moment that that has proven correct. Now, I, th- I'm not saying in like the nudging of a spirit way of like, maybe you should call that person or take them to dinner. You know, whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the panic, midnight, Googling grad schools, <laughs> like that sort of like, if I don't go move to Europe now, I'm never going to move to Europe. Like that sort of, that we've all had in various forms. Yeah, yeah. Or like, you know, that's, Zillow doom scrolling is everything. Zillow about? doom scrolling, yeah. job hunting, like that sort of like yeah. urgent. If it doesn't happen, I like. Are we just have. I think we just have to resist that with every fiber of our being and like with every breath we can pray, because I think that's maybe the to a previous podcast. That's the acedia. That's the sloth. That's yeah. the like the noonday demon. The panic. Like avoid the panic. So if if you're in a place where you're feeling like I have to re-examine my whole faith right now or like I can't go on, um, like slow down, breathe deeply. You, you can take a long time to decide these things. You know, do I need to go to a church where they will appoint women elders? Okay. How about we take the next six to 18 months to think and read and pray through that, right? Like it doesn't have to be, uh, just, yeah, it doesn't have to be a binary. We can think through these things with thoughtful Christians. And I'm mean, Lord willing, you have thoughtful Christians around you, thoughtful pastors. I think people are more open to talk and discuss than we often think. Um, I think safe people may not always be the easiest to find, but they're definitely around and there. Um, I've had that experience in my, my own life of thinking nobody will want to talk about this. And then they're actually much more op- open to talking about something than I thought they would be. So that's my main thing is just slow down. If, if you're suddenly feeling an uncontrollable urge to change everything about your life, that is traditionally not how the spirit works in my experience. <laughs> Love, joy, peace, patience, yeah. right, kindness, goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control there's nothing impulsive about no. the spirit and who's to say that like in 20 years you might go through another dark night of the soul or crisis of faith or whatever mm-hmm. um but i think that like we have to learn to ride those waves like and if you if you treat every wave like it's a tidal wave um then you're probably just going to set yourself up for another crisis in a few years of like returning to the faith because he like, you know, like here comes another wave. So I think we just have to learn to sort of take it slow and ride it out. Um, And in the process, think through what your beliefs about what beliefs about God are underpinning that sense of urgency or anxiety. And, I'm sure I've talked about this on the podcast before because it is a foundational understanding that changed my view on on God, which was Tim Keller's example of, is God your father or your landlord? Hmm. And when it comes to like disappointment or feeling the need to blow up your life or change things dramatically, I do think it comes down to like, is God your landlord who's supposed to take care of you and fix the sink when you call and who's supposed to keep it freshly painted um, or is God your father who is 
I don't know, <laughs> who, who is going to, to give and take with wisdom and discernment. Um, and I think that so often disappointment comes when I, th- I've thought of God as, as a landlord and I've sort of stood before him and said, like, it wasn't supposed to be this way. You were supposed to X, Y, Z, um, and, and you haven't done it. But instead, if we view him as, as a father who desires to give us good gifts and who, yeah, he's, he's not someone who is just supposed to make us, give us everything we ever asked for, because that's not necessarily what's best for us. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think no matter where anybody is at, whether this term is something they would sneer at and deride, or it's something that they feel deep in their bones, or it's something they've used as an excuse for whatever, I think what you just described is we just all have to reckon with that, that, that of who the Lord is, mm-hmm. who he really is, mm-hmm. and who he isn't. And... And it might not be the worst thing in the world to discover many things that he isn't. Right. It might really clarify, as you're describing, who he really is. And then at the end of the day, realizing that's who we needed all along. Mm -hmm. And we just want people to be encouraged. Um, We want people to to know that the Lord is is not lost. And that the Lord does not associate himself with with things that can be lost. Um, hmm. And that he is, as Augustine says, he's nearer to us than we are to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Wherever you are at any moment, that is true. And sometimes it takes stillness and patience and prayer mm-hmm. and resisting the impulse to flee or to change or to decide something. Um and I think returning to that place of just being able to wait before the Lord and pray, maybe prayers that are might sound desperate, might sound confused, might sound like the Psalms, might sound like people for whom life was always much harder than many of us have experienced. Um, it might actually draw us closer to the places where people have always needed to call on the name of the Lord. But I, I think we would just say, man, if you call on the name of the Lord, he will answer. Like, and, and you can be sure on a deeper level, maybe than a lot of the noise that we associate with the Lord, you can be sure it's him that, that if you need to relearn his voice, like he is the good shepherd. He will, he will care for you. Mm-hmm. Whatever is going on, he will care for you and he will bring you to places of rest and of, of refreshment and he will give you what you need even if it's totally different than what you thought you needed mm-hmm. um, like that that to me has been what it means to slowly grow up in the lord is to be like man i just completely missed what i <laughs> was going to be you know or like miscalculated yeah. what my life was going to look like um mm-hmm. and and thank God, you know, like, uh, thank God, because I don't have to try to prop that up. Right. I don't have to posture. I don't have to like, uh, there's something I've just found such refuge in knowing that my identity is hidden in Christ mm-hmm. and he won't give me more of it than I can than be responsible with. And, mm-hmm. and I know it's safe with him and I know someday I will know even as I am known, but I'm grateful that I don't know everything uh, that he's not asking me to approve you know um, his plan <laughs> or <laughs> yeah you know like there's something and that's that father thing you're talking about mm-hmm. like i trust him um yeah with me and i don't need everything all at once i i just need to know he can carry it mm-hmm. and when it's the right times he'll he'll show me a little bit more of what he wants me to, to rest in or, or be responsible for. Um, but I've come to really be grateful for that verse that I am hidden in him, mm-hmm. hidden even from myself. Mm-hmm. And so if I decide or pronounce, or I, I better be real careful because I, 
he has not given me that much <laughs> understanding <laughs> of even uh, who I am in him, you know, like to keep it simple um, has been a great, has been a great uh, blessing. Um, Laura, thank you for, thank you for just the, the way that you think these things through. I know what a help it is to so many who listen to the podcast. Um, and we would just encourage people, man, you're not alone. And there are good churches out there. Mm -hmm. If you're searching or if you're in our area, shoot me an email, um, from Babylon with love at gmail.com. Um, and we would love to pray and try to help you find a good church. Um, but yeah, there are brothers and sisters out there and we're all going to keep slowly moving forward together. Um, so yeah, thank you. Thank you for the conversation and, thank uh, you. yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully there's some, some helpful encouragement if you find yourself in a realm of uncertain uncertainty or if someone close to you is, um, stick, stick together and go slow. 